Oh, I can barely keep my eyes open. I'm on my third cup of coffee, and it's just not working. That's what I get for starting a conversation with my wife during the 11 o'clock news. You know, I mentioned I'd be going into the office on Saturday, and she said she'd made plans for us. Plans? Well, one thing led to another, and it wasn't long before the argument turned into a shouting match. Okay, not exactly actual shouting. It was that low-volume, let's-not-wake-up-the-kids kind of argument that just gets even more frustrating and bitter. On my side, there were some comments about how she burns through money. In her corner, there were some jabs about my selfish ambitions. Oh, I said some things I shouldn't have. She responded in kind. And somewhere around 3 a.m., we just agreed to disagree. If I'm honest, most of the arguing starts with me. I'm lousy at this. I find myself digging in on inconsequential points and battling to win the argument just so I can win, even if I know I'm wrong. I'll paint myself into a corner verbally, and then I won't be able to drop my pride long enough to simply apologize and work things out. Okay, let me share a little of the blame here. Everything I know about marriage is what I learned from watching my parents, and they were terrible communicators. Their dynamic wasn't healthy at all, pretty typical of the era, but Dad was touchy and brash, especially toward Mom, and his communication style was all posturing and name-calling. He wasn't violent, but his words came at you like a freight train. Mom's approach was equally unhealthy. She was a passive-aggressive ninja, the master of the silent treatment. In a family argument, she'd never take a stand, even if she was the one who picked the fight. She'd give in at the peak of an argument and let Dad win, but in the end, there really were no winners. We'd all have to endure her two-week pity party where she would withdraw in a huff, pout, and then mutter sarcastic comments under her breath. All blame aside, I've got to get a handle on this combative, argumentative nature of mine. I see the pattern repeating itself in every area of my life. It's spilling over into my work, my friendships, even conversations with my kids. But how can I change? How can I stop arguing and just learn to say I'm sorry? <sighs> this is not easy. You know, every single one of us has had uh, issues at some time or another with a relationship. And uh, that's nothing new. But there is a, a book in the Bible, 1 Corinthians, that talks about that. Nowhere in there does it say that love is easy. But it does say love is patient and love is kind. Now in our series, Back to the Bible, I want to talk about something this morning that all relationships have in common. All relationships. In fact, I'd say that it's so common that you can't have a relationship without it. So what is it that all growing and maturing relationships have in common? It's conflict. Conflict. In fact, the book of 1 Corinthians is a book that's filled with conflict. In fact, as you read the book, you discover they had conflicts uh, regarding loyalties between one another. There were conflicts between classes of people. There was conflicts over personal freedoms. There were conflicts in personal relationships. There were conflicts in marriage. And so much so that when Paul addresses the church at Corinth, he says this. 
For there is envy and strife and divisions among you. Now, you need to know that Corinth was a very busy place to live. Uh, It was a dynamic city of commerce located on a small isthmus of land that was separating the Aegean Sea uh, to the east and the Ionian Sea to the west. And, uh, And any ship that wanted to avoid the dangerous voyage around the northern tip of Greece would actually pay to have their ship dragged across that short isthmus. In fact, today you can even see some of the grooves left by centuries of dragging ships across that narrow strip of land. And it saved them time, but it cost money, and so they paid. And as a result, I mean, Corinth became a place of booming business, all sorts of trade taking place. It it boasted an outdoor... um, uh, amphitheater that could uh, accommodate 20,000 people at a time. It also had a great stadium where they would house Olympic events and all sorts of athletic games. You know, k- kids have never had a problem in being creative when it comes to games, have they? I remember walking into our house one day and our kids were in the living room and they were trying to see how many balloons they could keep in the air without one touching the ground. One balloon was pretty easy. Two was a little more difficult. Uh, A third was added, which increased their frenetic pace. When the fourth and fifth balloon were added, I mean, they, they were bumping into walls, careening over furniture. I mean, it was crazy. You know, that's a great picture of the pace of life, the frenetic pace in Corinth. And it's really a, a mirror of the way we tend to live our life today in our modern culture. I mean, we run from one activity to another, uh, from one deadline to the next, trying to keep our balloons in the air. But did you know that busyness intensifies conflict in relationships? I mean, busyness keeps you running faster and faster, from project to project, uh, from quota to quota, from one balloon to the next, until we start skimming life rather than really living it. And so we begin skimming it, well, relationally, the bond between you and your spouse that was uh, strong and intimate starts becoming increasingly weak and distant. Uh, you start putting band-aids on serious problems because you don't have time to address the root issues. I mean, we resort to quick fixes. Uh, We pretend that things aren't really as bad as they are, so the little signs of trouble just get pushed to a side, and those interactions that you had with your spouse that were deep and authentic, well, now they're characterized by shallowness, and pretty soon no one has access to us because we're so busy trying to keep our balloons from hitting the ground. But we not only skim life relationally, we start skimming it emotionally. I mean, we find ourselves feeling tense inside, our anger coming out more and more, flaring up, but we don't take time to figure out why. We we stop paying attention to feelings like hurt, anger, sadness, 
We just keep marching. We do what is necessary. We stuff our emotions deeper and deeper inside because we don't have time to look at them. And if we realize that those feelings were planning an emotional insurrection that would one day scare the living daylights out of us, we might give them some attention. But we're too busy to look inside. And for the most part, the peace and the rest that we long for disappears and we find our hearts haunted by all sorts of unresolved conflicts and resentments in relationships. Now that's life in Corinth and it's life in the 21st century. So in order to find the peace and the rest that uh, we seek, we need to understand how do you handle the inevitable conflict that comes in relationships? Did you know there are three ways that we all naturally tend to handle conflict? One of these will be natural to you. I mean, the first I call the Eskimo approach. You try to freeze the other person out. Some of you are experts at that. In, in a home where this method is employed, everyone knows there's conflict. I mean, you can feel it in the air, but no one talks about it. People avoid it. They hope it just disappears. They don't have to address it. But in Eskimo homes, the chill never leaves the air. Every new conflict simply puts another layer of ice over the relationship until eventually this couple freezes one another out into total withdrawal from the relationship. But, but for some of you, that, that's not your style. I mean, you have the cowboy approach, right? Uh, you let the bullets fly. I mean, in your relationships, when problems surface and misunderstandings arise, well, you square off with one another. You say, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. And the verbal bullets begin to fly back and forth. I mean, there's a lot of venting of emotions and feelings. Anger is released, but a lot of damage is done. And the conflict that started it all never really gets addressed. It never gets resolved. But, but there's a third strategy some of you employ. Uh, this strategy, I would say, you say this, let me out of here. I call it the Houdini approach to conflict. I mean, it's, it's your way of dealing with conflict by escaping. I mean, you leave. Disagreements arise. Somebody gets drunk. Somebody else goes shopping. Somebody goes to work. Workaholism. You spend an inordinate amount of time at the office. I mean, in the Houdini home, there's a lot of action, a lot of doors slamming, but nothing ever gets resolved the problems and issues are never really faced. So where are you among those three? How many of you tend to naturally be Eskimos? Raise your hand. How many honest souls do we have out there? Come on, Eskimos. Oh, some of you, okay, we got a few honest souls. That's great. How many tend to employ the cowboy approach? Okay, yeah, that's, that's kind of my approach. How many kind of have... A Houdini home, you just disappear, okay? So what do the rest of you do? <laughs> Some of you are good at all three, someone said, okay? Well, if conflict is common to all relationships, then we've got to figure out how do you resolve 
conflicts in marriage. If the goal of marriage, it can't be to be conflict-free since they're common to all relationships, but it's knowing how to resolve the inevitable conflicts that come. Do you know there's great value in conflict in marriage? Uh, There's benefit in having conflict and getting it out in the open. I mean, one of the values is conflict helps you understand each other better. Did you know that? That's a great value. You could say uh, conflict is a journey into the unknown. In other words, the goal of conflict is to learn, to understand how your mate feels, thinks, and acts in certain ways. And that can only come to the surface in conflict. Secondly, conflict also develops greater intimacy. You could say conflict is a war of sorts. But it's not a war between you and your spouse. No, it's a war with the natural drift that occurs in every relationship toward isolation, distance, and coldness. Uh, You see, the goal of marriage is not to think alike, but to come to think together. That requires working through conflict to get there. And then third, conflict can also help you clean up toxic waste. I mean, when misunderstandings occur in a relationship, it leaves behind a residue of maybe anger or bitterness or resentment. And over time, that residue begins to accumulate deeper and deeper and deeper until it develops a toxicity in the marriage. And that's why Proverbs says this, contentions are like the bars of a castle. In other words, our unaddressed grievances make you feel like you're behind prison bars, confined and isolated from one another if you're not careful. So you could say every conflict is like an open loop. So if every conflict is an open loop, then we need to understand how do we close the loop in conflict And there's probably no better perspective than the one offered by Paul to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says this, Though I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but do not love, it profits me nothing. In other words, what Paul is saying is you can have the big house, the great career, the fantastic reputation for charitable giving, but if you don't have love, it is actually going to profit you nothing. Wow. So what's the right perspective? Well, Paul continues. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, now you need to know the word used by Paul here. Uh, that we have translated love is not describing a sensual kind of love that's based upon body chemistry. For that, he would have used the Greek, another Greek word, the Greek word eros. And it's not describing a love 
that you would have for a dear friend, a brotherly love. For that, he would have chosen the Greek word phileo. But instead, Paul chooses a very unique word used primarily only in the Bible, rare in secular scripture, and that's the word agapao. It's an unconditional love, a selfless love. You see, where phileo, the brotherly love, uh, implies I love you because of something I find in you, agapao love is a love that says I love you in spite of what I find in you. It's the kind of love God has for us. And it's the only, Paul knows, it's the only kind of love that can overcome conflicts in relationships because it's the only kind of love that compels us to seek and serve the complete well-being of the other person. So, exactly how does this kind of love help us close the loop in conflict? Well, you need to know, first of all, that closing the loop begins with first uncovering the hurt. I mean, the bottom line is this. When we're offended, we all experience an emotion. And for all of us, it's the same emotion. But we don't like this emotion. In fact, we want to ignore it. We'd like to zoom right by it. And that's the emotion of hurt. See, when I'm offended, I feel hurt. And when you're offended, you feel hurt. But none of us in this room likes feeling hurt. So you know what we do? We tend to cover it over with another emotion. Anger. And that's one of the reasons why anger is probably the most common response when conflict occurs. It could be a wife who is hurt that her husband forgot their anniversary. Or or it might be a husband that feels hurt because... His wife doesn't appreciate how hard he provides for the family. So let's say you have a wife who's hurt that her husband didn't notice her new haircut. But she doesn't say anything. She doesn't talk about it. She just kind of keeps it inside. She molds it over, thinks about it from time to time. And after some time goes by, uh, that hurt begins to morph into a sense of irritation. And then it begins to morph again into anger. And before she knows it, I mean, it's real subtle, before she knows it, she's thinking, I can't believe I married that insensitive jerk. And so it gives birth to anger. Now, for most of us, it feels safer to acknowledge anger than it does hurt. Now, why is that? Well, it's because anger is you focus. Well, hurt is me focus. And to acknowledge hurt makes me feel vulnerable. And when I feel vulnerable, I feel like you have the upper hand. But anger fools me into thinking I've got the upper hand. I'm right You're wrong. Anger makes me think I'm in control. But it's a lie. It's a lie. So anger must be a bad thing. Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, what you do with the anger you feel determines whether it's good or bad. See, anger is actually a God-given emotion. In fact, Paul said this to the church at Ephesus, Uh, speaking of anger, he said, be angry 
and yet do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. I mean, notice he says, be angry. Did, did, did you recognize that as being a command? Paul is commanding the Ephesians to be angry. You see, we tend to classify emotions as good or bad. I mean, the good emotions are love, joy, peace, patience, you know, those. The bad ones are hate, jealousy, anger. We embrace the good emotions, but we try to avoid the bad emotions. But did you know God wants us to experience all of life? See, emotions aren't good or bad. They're really neutral. They are indicators of what's going on in our life. Now, what you do with that emotion determines whether it's good or bad, how you respond to it. Notice the Bible says, be angry, but don't sin. In other words, there must be a healthy way of dealing with the anger we naturally feel. You see, what emotions are like is that they are like the lights on the dashboard of your car. Now, when your dashboard lights up, telling you your engine is overheated, what do you do? Do you put a piece of tape over it and keep driving? No, you'll ruin your engine. Do you pull into a garage and tell the attendant, something's wrong with this light here, it keeps going on? No, you pull into the garage and you tell the attendant, would you look under my hood to see what's really going on, what's causing the problem? See, emotions are like that. They're indicators on the dashboard of life letting us know what's going on under the hood of our life. And you see, the key to good emotional health is knowing what's going on under your hood. So anger, it's really an opportunity, isn't it? It's an opportunity to look under your hood to see what's going on there. You need to ask yourself the question when you're angry is, what hurt could this anger be covering up? You see, we, we may be able to manage one hurt, and two hurts can be a little problem, problem, problematic, but you accumulate three or four hurts, then you, they're next to impossible to manage. You can't keep them from comparing notes to one another. So we accumulate this pile of hurts and grievances inside, and we become so full of anger that we find ourselves exploding at the dumbest things, the, the slightest provocation. And we say all sorts of destructive things. I mean, even you Eskimos out there can blow up when you allow hurts to simmer long enough. That's why Paul says, so don't let the sun go down on your anger. He's saying, deal with the grievances when they arise. Don't stack them on top of one another and let them fester until they turn to hostility. You see, if you go back to what preceded the anger, and you can identify that, you're well on the way to addressing the walls that separate us. So it begins by closing, uh, to close the loop, it begins by uncovering the hurt that we originally felt. But there's a second step in this, and that is closing the loop requires forgiveness. Forgiveness. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. Let's close them. And I want you to use your imagination. Imagine 
an offense happened between you and your spouse this past week, or maybe it's you and a friend, or you and a child, but this offense is not just any offense. This offense is one that happens over and over again. In fact, it happens so many times. You, you both have grown weary of dealing with it. You hate the hurt feelings, the anger it ignites. So you picture in your mind the two of you going your separate ways. But you were playing over and over in your mind what you could have said, what you should have said, what would have put them in their place. You think of all the comments that you could have shot back. It's that evening. Your anger has kind of subsided now. Then they walk into the room and you feel the tension. Can you imagine what that's like? Now, it's at that point you have a choice. You can open your eyes. Every conflict leads you to a fork in the road. You have a choice. You can choose to resolve the conflict, the hurt feelings, and close the loop, or you can decide, no, I'm going to leave the loop wide open to collect the debris of the next conflict that comes along. One path leads to life and rest. The other path lets disappointment and resentment deepen in your relationship. So the question is, how? We can open the loop. How, how do we close it? Well, first, you need to know the offended party, the offending party, needs to seek forgiveness. Seek forgiveness. In other words, when I mess up, uh, I need to take responsibility to, for my words or my actions. But seeking forgiveness, really, it doesn't come that easily to us. It wasn't long ago... Patty came to me and mentioned she would like to check into a gym membership uh, as a place to work out. But, but instead of saying, that's a great idea, honey, why don't you check into prices? You know what I said? Oh, honey, what makes you think you're going to work out? We got weights in the basement and you don't even use them. Hey, this is a true story. I said that. You know that moment you know you're in trouble? <laughs> well, this was that moment. Patty looked at me and just turned and walked away. Now, when she did that, uh, I, I knew I should go to her and work this out. I knew this is something we needed to talk about. I mean, I suspected... I could tell she was upset, and I suspected it had something to do with what I said. I wasn't 100% convinced in my mind at the time. But you know what I did at that point? I procrastinated. I said, oh, it was no big deal. Oh, she'll, I bet she'll get over it, and I just went my own way. Well, about sometime that evening... It became quite apparent to me that I needed to initiate a conversation with Patty. So I went to her and we began to talk. And as we did, she told me that she felt hurt and ridiculed by what I said. 
And as I listened to what she said, it became quite apparent to me that I needed to seek her forgiveness. So after she got everything out that she wanted to say and needed to say, I told her that I needed to say a few things. I first acknowledged that my words had wounded her. And she had every right to feel hurt, even angry over what I said. And and then secondly, I told her uh, that I have no excuse for what I did and that I was dead wrong. It was insensitive. And then thirdly, I said, will you forgive me? I asked specifically. Now, Patty's comments, or my comments, had stung Patty. Now, here's the beauty of, of going to a person and seeking forgiveness. By going to Patty and seeking her forgiveness, I kept the hurt she felt from turning into bitterness, resentment, anger. That's the power of seeking forgiveness. You see, seeking forgiveness means, first of all, admitting that you're wrong. Your words or actions actually hurt. You admit that. Two, it means being willing uh, to say, I'm sorry, not I didn't mean it, or I didn't mean it that way, or you shouldn't take it that way, but I'm sorry I hurt you. And then third, it means asking, will you forgive me? And frankly, that's going to require humility. So the offender, that was me, I needed to seek forgiveness, but the scripture also says that the offended party needs to grant forgiveness. In fact, when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he put it this way, he said, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. See, the basis of forgiveness is that we have been forgiven. We can forgive because, well, God has already forgiven us. But granting forgiveness, well, it doesn't come naturally, does it? I mean, when when you've been hurt, when your pride's been wounded, you don't want to let the other person off the hook, do you? And what's natural is you want that sucker to pay. But God's not asking us to do what's natural. He's asking us to do what's supernatural here. See, when it comes to forgiveness, the problem is we tend to treat this word forgiveness like we do the word love. We we tend to think that... uh, What forgiveness and love mean is that it's something that happens to us rather than something we do. I mean, think of being in love. Do you think of being overwhelmed with longing and desire and passion? But what happens in a relationship when pressures uh, and exhaustion and fatigue begin to set in? Those loving feelings begin to disappear, don't they? And when those loving feelings start to wane, what do you do? Well, you love anyway, don't you? You see, love is not so much a feeling as it is something you do. And the same is true with forgiveness. Forgiving the other person doesn't mean that uh, you forget the offense. It doesn't mean it's an automatic cure for the hurt either. If that's the case, well, we would wait a long time before we forgave somebody. Forgiving, forgiveness like love is something we do. In other words, forgiveness means choosing to set your spouse free from the debt of their offense. It really means promising three things. First, forgiveness means I'll not dwell on the matter again. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13? Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Secondly, forgiveness means 
I will not bring up the matter again. Remember how Paul put it in the passage in 1 Corinthians? Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked. And then third, it means I will not talk about it with others. Remember how Paul put it? He said, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So forgiveness is really a choice to let go of resentment and my right to get even with you for the hurts that you may have caused me to suffer. Now what we're really talking about is forgiveness is like a box in a lid. I mean, for the offender, you take all your unkind comments, your hurtful actions, and it's like you place them in a box. And then you take this box over to the person you've offended in order to seek their forgiveness. Now, for the offender... Well, it's like taking the lid and then deciding I'm going to place it on the box, sealing the disagreements. Now it can be placed high on a shelf where it will eventually be forgotten along with the other remnants of the past. But, But what if there is no box and what if there is no lid? What do you do then? I mean, what if you want to forgive, but your partner doesn't want to apologize? How do you reconcile or resolve that? Well, I think you've got to distinguish between forgiveness and reconciliation. You could say forgiveness is a personal act. It's a one-way street. I, I, I can forgive by extending Well, empathy and compassion to the other person, whether they're willing to apologize or not. But reconciliation, on the other hand, well, that's a team effort. It it focuses on the repair of the relationship. It is a two-way street. In other words, I can forgive, but only we can reconcile the relationship. So that brings up the question, where does the power to do all this come from? Well, if you've ever studied the life of Jesus, you'll see that you can take his name and substitute it in 1 Corinthians 13 for the word love. And it makes perfect sense. Here's what it says. Jesus suffers long and is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. You see, the key to marriage is love, and the key to love is to love with the kind of love Only Jesus can empower you to live by. That's the only way you'll find it within you to let go of resentment and bitterness and be able to forgive. When we got married, uh, Stephen moved from South Bend, Indiana to Cincinnati. Um, He married me. I had a two and a half year old son. Uh, He got a new job. 
you got a new car, we got a new house. So we had a lot of stress, but we seemed to handle that pretty well. And then we had a baby. And I think that just sort of tipped us over the edge where we were both working really hard and we just had too many things going on. And all of a sudden we were not handling the stress very well. And that kind of came from both of our parents. We grew up in homes where we never really saw conflict ever. So when we had conflict, I felt like, wow, it's really, really bad that I'm disagreeing or I'm wrong or she's wrong maybe sometimes. But (laughs) uh, that um, we just hadn't seen models of people that had conflict in a marriage and dealt with it. Our bad habits in terms of communication... um, were sometimes, you know, letting it escalate to a level that it wasn't really a conversation, it was more of a fight. Or, on the other hand, just not talking about it at all. So it kind of got to be, you know, a grain of sand in the oyster, and it just really didn't turn into a pearl. It Mm -hmm. turned into a kind of a disaster, which is what led us to kind of pretty much make the decision to separate. When we decided to separate, one of the good things we did was we were very much about making sure the kids had as little pain as possible. So we did a, I think, amazing job co-parenting and trying to make all that work out. I mean, to the extent that, like, I got another house in the same school district to make sure the children's friends were all the same. We weren't sharing through the school system. We were just kind of really working on ourselves and not working on them. And we were very flexible because I sometimes travel for work and so you were always there to help and vice versa. And So we did all that well, but really we ended up being separated for quite a long time. Um, years. Yes, years. When we were talking to lawyers and trying to figure out what we were going to do, we just let the whole process sort of drag along, I think because we really weren't convinced in our heart that it was the right thing to do. In, in our case, you know, the attorneys, the divorce attorneys, basically were, you know, creating bitterness and creating materialistic considerations and demanding things from one another. And we finally just decided that just, just, just not where we wanted to go with this. And we kind of didn't really want to split things up. We really probably were still in the phase of counseling and and at one point we just kind of said this isn't really what we want to do and we just kind of stopped and told we did and I, you know I, I still think that the fact that we were so committed to making the best of a bad situation for our children um, kept us having some positive experiences together because we would do things together as a family sometimes mm-hmm. and you know those things start to bring you back together and it was just a matter of getting to the place where we could forgive and you know start to understand the other person versus looking so much inside things might seem like they're better somewhere else but they're not every relationship has its issues and the real key is figuring out how to deal with those issues and that conflict that's the secret to a really good relationship i think that's true i think a lot of people look outward they don't look inward and it takes longer to admit to yourself that you need to look inward it's so easy to find <clears throat> another alternative or a different place to go or something like that. And yet coming back is the hard part because um, you have to face yourself as well as face um, your wife in terms of accountability for you know who you are and what's going on. And I don't know who said it, but one of the greatest things I've ever heard is take, take, the, take responsibility for what they hear. 
not for what you say. And so if you stay in that space, it changes your life completely in terms of conflict and anything else. You know, God has a plan that you don't always understand. So, you know, you're saying a prayer with a lot of intensity and not really feeling like it's being answered. But through this whole journey, you learn that, wow, I really grew as a person. We look back often now and say, gosh, uh, we think we have one of the better marriages and we're just so thankful that we were able to hold on and to realize that there was a bigger plan that maybe we just didn't understand at the time. Uh, today, we're coming up on our 30th anniversary. Uh, we got back together 25 years ago. Is that about right? Yeah, about 25 years ago. Um, we, I, you know, I feel like I'm incredibly blessed. My, I, I uh, have a pretty demanding job, and my husband's incredibly supportive of what I do. He's incredibly supportive of the time I need with friends and family. Our family unit is at the best place it's ever been. I mean, again, we're giving thanks every day because everybody's in a good place right now. We just feel very blessed. You know, the, the story ends, or at least up to this point, after 30 years, ends really, really well. And then um, we are, you know, hopefully going to live, you know, another 30 years together again. So. Um, and I would just build on, I do think we are growing together, which is awesome. We're still very different people. Uh, he gives me energy. I help him relax. Um, but yet we've been able to find places where, you know, together we can grow spiritually and and as a family and uh, be better parents to our kids and and better kids to our moms and we're going to be amazing grandparents that's what <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you know one of the things that may help you look inward so you can identify the hurts that may be underneath the anger uh, can be found on the bookmark we've given you in your program I mean, notice this side uh, talks about five reasons women get angry and five reasons men get angry. They can help you identify what may be really the hurt that may be lying below the surface that the anger's covering up so you can begin communicating to one another on that level. And then the other side, seven obstacles for resolving conflict uh, help you identify ways you may be sabotaging uh, this process of reconciliation. So we would love to talk with you more about that. And if you've got questions, we would love to meet you down in the hearth room. Third door on the left as you leave. I want to thank you all for coming and we look forward to seeing you back next week.